Well, it's great to see everyone this morning. Thank you for being here. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Church. Um, And in recognizing all of our needs to hear from the Holy Spirit, to have the Holy Spirit guide us and direct us, we take a time before we dig into the Word to prepare ourselves. We prepared ourselves with worship. We prepared ourselves with welcome. And now we prepare ourselves with becoming present, present to ourselves, to our emotions, to where we are present to the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit would teach us during this time, because ultimately we learn from the Holy Spirit through the Word, together in community. So I'm going to lead us through a prayer, but I would ask you as you do this to just set everything else aside. Everything that comes after today, everything that's come before All the things on your to-do list, just take them and set them aside to be present to God today. Pray with me. God, the Holy Spirit, we are desperate in our need of grace, the grace to hear your voice, to lay down our lives so that you may give us your life, life for here and life for forever. God, we confess our dullness, our idolatry, our selfishness, and our arrogance. When we profess to be wise, we are fools. When we profess to be good, we are profane. When we profess to be whole, we are utterly scattered. Yet we are not without hope. Our hope is in you. Our hope is in your gospel, your good news. Our hope is in your loving kindness towards us. May we walk in the names that you call us, not the names of the world. You call us forgiven, beloved, and holy. Teach us to walk in those names. Teach us to call others the same. God, the Holy Spirit, now give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love and obey, and minds to discern you in all that is good and true and beautiful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Many choices that we make have an immediate consequence to them, right? It doesn't take us long after eating gas station sushi to realize that was a bad idea, right? Like some choices, man, we know that that was a bad choice right away. Others, not so much. Consider that in 2005, graffiti artist David Coe took a job painting the office of this startup internet thing. They offered him a couple thousand dollars for the work, or they said, hey, we can give you some stock instead of the payment. Well, even though he didn't really understand the concept of the company, he went ahead and took the stock instead of the money. Eight years later, he sold his Facebook stock for $200 million. It took a while, but he got to see the effect of that choice. But really, most of the choices we make through life, we don't get to see the effect of it. Um, It's been an emotional few days for me. Uh, My friend Bob Tate and his daughter Emily are here, Uh, Bob's dad passed away on Friday. 
And Dr. Tate's been a presence in my life for 40 years. Next Saturday, we'll have the memorial there in Austin, and we'll, friends and colleagues and family members will be there to pay tribute, give honor to remember this man. He's not going to see that, at least not this side. With that, there are consequences and choices that he has made through his life that now will be carried on that he'll never see. And that, that truth is true for all of us. As we are making choices now every day that will, go, that will outlive us far beyond into future generations, that we don't know how they're going to turn out. We don't know what's going to happen. So how do we live in a world? How do we live in a world where the choices we make, we're just not clear on what, what that's going to mean, where it's going to go? Well, thank goodness we're not left just to figure it out on our own. I mean, we have the Word. We have Scripture. We're given, we're given rules in a way. We're giving principles in a way to guide us to make choices. And, and for, the, for, the, for most of the choices between good and evil and right and wrong, we understand those choices are given. We're, we have clear instruction on what is the way to walk in. But so much of our life, it's not like that. So much of our life, there are choices that there is no clear right and wrong. It is not, it's a choice between one option and another option, and we don't know which way to go. And, and it's not like one choice, it's not choice like the choice between to kill someone or not kill someone. I mean, it's not that clear cut. It's like I said to the kids, like, well, okay, who, who are you going to marry? Where are you going to live? What job are you going to take? Right? How do we make these decisions? Well, we're given this story in the book of Ruth, which is probably not, you know, in the top 10 books of things that you would list in the Bible, right? Ruth is not one of those that we all know by heart. We don't quote Ruth. We don't hold up, you know, Ruth 316 at the football game to get in the, in the shot, you know, um, but this story, as I've been meditating and reading it, and I hope as all of us will read this week, I think has some really profound truth that is key to understanding who God is, key to understanding the gospel, and key to understanding also, in a very practical way, how we are to make choices. And we don't have time to read the whole book. I want to encourage you to read it. It's only five chapters. It's, it, you can do it in 30 minutes. You can sit down, read it from start to finish. I encourage you to do that. And, but we're just going to talk about the first part. We're going to talk about how Ruth gets in this situation where we find her in the rest of the, of the book. Ruth isn't your typical Bible book. First, it's only one of two books that's named after a woman. Second, it's a book of history, but its story exists almost outside of the rest of biblical history. Like we don't, there's no, you know, kings named or things. We know it's in the time of the patriarchs, but we really don't know where and exactly how. It's its, its own little self-contained story. But it's a brilliant work about how God works in the lives of ordinary people, even behind the scenes. It's also, it's also unique in the sense that Ruth is, okay, geek out for a minute here. In all other religions, right, 
when you have, and even in political structures, when you have someone that you want to exalt as a God figure or a leader figure, oftentimes what the person would do is, especially like, let's take Caesar for an an example. Caesar becomes Caesar. What they do is they go back and they rewrite a history for Caesar. So they write a history that in a way justifies this person becoming who they are, the leader, the God, whatever. We see this in in different religions with that. Christianity is unique in the sense that we see Jesus and there's no whitewashing of his history. There's no going back and putting, uh, making his history perfect where he's the hero. No, the history of Jesus is full of foreigners, prostitutes, outcasts. Like, it's almost like if you would write a history for someone who wouldn't be who they were with Jesus. And we see, as we're going to see, because Ruth is in the direct lineage of Jesus, it would have been so much easier to make her character in a way perfect or one of the the right class, the right kind of person. But the Bible doesn't do that here. And so that's another thing that really commends the veracity of the Bible to us, in particular, gives us reason to pay attention to this book. Well, ultimately, and we see in it that one of the main characters, Ruth, who the book is named after, reflects Jesus by showing loyalty and sacrifice at a level beyond human reason. This book speaks to God's covenantal faithfulness in a unique and powerful way. So let's just read. We're going to start at chapter 1. We're just going to read a few verses as we go to set the story, and then we'll make a few observations. During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land of Judah. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to live as a resident foreigner in the region of Moab along with his wife and two sons. Now the man's name was Elimelech. His wife was Naomi, and his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were the clan of Ephrah from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the region of Moab and settled there. Now we have to remember, Moab, they're enemies. They're foreigners. These are unclean. These are people that Israel was told not to intermingle with, not to intermarry with, stay away from. And yet we have this Israelite going into Moab because of the famine. Sometime later, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, so she and her two sons were left alone. Her sons married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth. And they continued to live there about 10 years. Then Naomi's two sons, Malon and Kilion, also died. So the woman was left all alone, bereaved of her two children as well as her husband. And don't miss the pathos of this story. <clears throat> this is not just a mere setup to teach us something. This is, this is, these are real named people. We can all feel the loss We can all feel what comes from being insecure in how are you going to live? How are you going to provide for your family? No husband, no sons. What's going to happen next? So Naomi, so she decided to return home from the region of Moab, accompanied by her daughters-in-law, because she she was living in Moab. She had heard that the Lord had shown concern for his people, reversing the famine by providing abundant crops. Now she and her two daughters-in-law began to leave the place where she had been living and return to the land of Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, listen to me. 
Each of you should return to your mother's home. May the Lord show you the same kind of devotion that you have shown to your deceased husbands and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the home of a new husband. She kissed them goodbye and they wept loudly, but they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi replied, go back, go back home, my daughters. There is no reason for you to return to Judah with me. I am no longer capable of giving birth to sons who might become your husbands. Go back home, my daughters, for I am too old to get married again. Even if I thought that there was a hope I could get married tonight and conceive sons, surely you would not want to wait until they were old enough to marry. Surely you would not remain unmarried all that time. No, my daughters, you must return, not return with me. For my intense suffering is too much for you to bear. For the Lord is afflicting me. Again, they wept loudly. They kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to her. So Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. Go back home. And then we have one of the most profound, prophetic, and beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Ruth's return, or Ruth's response. Stop urging me to abandon you, for wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will become my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I do not keep my promise. Only death will be able to separate me from you. How visceral this moment must have been for Naomi. How unclear the way must have been. Just let it sit with you a minute. How, how unclear, how uncertain the future must have seemed. Both to Ruth, to Orpah, and to Naomi. And yet a choice had to be made and a choice was made. That we'll see has significant consequences. Now there's much more into the book. Obviously the story goes on about how um, Naomi... Um, engineers, as mother-in-laws are wont to do sometimes, a uh, meeting between Ruth and one of her kinsmen, Boaz. Now Boaz redeems um, Ruth in a very specific way, that, specifically that cultural context. How that results, as we'll see, in David being born and ultimately Jesus being born. But before we get there, let's just look, let's just sit with this choice for a minute. There is no promise here. In this context, there is no promise. As a matter of fact, Ruth or Naomi has gone to great extent to say, I can't do anything for you. I, 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 like you're, you're actually going to take a bad situation, Ruth, and make it worse by coming back to Judah. You're a Moabitess. You're an outsider. You're a foreigner. You're an alien. You're a refugee. My, my land doesn't want refugees. They don't want you to show up there. They don't like your kind. You're going to make your situation worse, worse by coming with me. And Ruth certainly has no guarantees. I mean, she's looking at Naomi going, you know what? She's right. She's not going to have any more sons. As a matter of fact, I'll not only be looking out for me, but I'll be looking out for her, and neither one of us has the means to do that. 
This is a desperate situation. And in this book, we see something unique, again, that women are the heroes here. There is no doubt. These are named women who are making serious life-altering consequences that are not centered around any man. They are dealing with the situations in a way that, in a way, I think only they can. And this story showcases the particular wisdom of women. And it sounds kind of strange, probably, for me being a guy up here talking about this. But also as a guy who was raised by a divorced mom when she was 13, with only a sister at home, and married to a woman with four daughters. We've had four daughters. I've, been, I've spent my life surrounded in these kind of contexts. And I can tell you that there is a particular wisdom that comes from wisdom that is just not there in us as guys. And this book is put in here for, to, to showcase that, to highlight that, to validate that with this. It may be weird for me to say that, right? But I want to bear witness to it with that. Now, in particular, what may be even more scandalous is that Ruth here is presented as a messianic figure. Now, you're going to hear this. You're going to hear Ruth taught many times, and Boaz is going to be made the hero as the kinsman redeemer. He's going to be the one who throws his sheet, you know, the corner of his sheet over Ruth as she's sleeping at the end. And to no doubt, there is a significant portrait of how we are redeemed through Boaz. But I believe to do that is to make one of the minor characters the major character. The major character in this book is not Boaz. The major character in this book is Ruth. Make no mistake about that. And it is her faithfulness that she expresses to Naomi that is to be the lesson for us. That is to be reflective of the covenantal faithfulness of God. Jesus is literally foretold in the life of Ruth. Ruth is a messianic type. Ruth demonstrates what Jesus does for us. Ruth does that in this. And to miss that is to miss what is going on in the book. Now, if that's scandalous to you, it should be, because the scandal, there's an even greater scandal going on here, and that is the scandalness, the scandal of God's love for us, God's covenant faithfulness for us. You see, because we're like Naomi, all of us are like Naomi. God comes to us in Jesus. And says, I'm going to make my dwelling among you. Jesus comes and says, your people will be my people. I will go where you go. I will die where you die. He did. He demonstrated all of this. He did everything. Jesus fulfilled everything that Ruth foretold in her pledge. Jesus came to us, made his dwelling among us, took on the shame, was treated as an outsider, ultimately suffered, died, crucified for us. And we are all like Naomi. 
no, no, it's okay, God. Look, it's okay, God. I, 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 yeah, I'm in a bad way, but don't, no, because I can't do anything for you, God. I, I don't have anything to give you, God. I can't, you, if you do that for me, I can't pay you back, right? We seek to justify God's rejection of us all the time. We are constantly looking away for ways to say, God, your grace, oh God, it's beautiful, but I don't, I don't deserve that, God. I can't pay you back for that, God. Don't you know who I am, God? I am barren. I am broken. I have no hope in this world. The only way I'm seeking to live is as a way where I can just go die quietly in the least painful way that I can find. Don't look at me, God. I don't have anything offer you. And God's loving, eternal response. Wherever you go, I will be there. Your people are my people. I will live where you live and I'll die where you die. And then swears an oath to keep that. Y'all, that's the covenant of God to us. That is the covenant of God to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. Romans, neither height nor depth, nor angels nor demons, nor anything else in all creation will keep us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. All of that is in the seed in Ruth's pledge to Naomi. She is Jesus here extending herself, giving herself, pledging herself, promising herself. And at great personal cost, don't miss the cost here to Ruth. At great personal cost, fulfilling that obligation. That's what she does, and that's what God does for us. God is always coming to us, always offering to us. And we are so often humiliated by His grace. Humiliated by it because we don't deserve it, and we can't pay it back. So what about us? What is our response in all this? And how are we to make our choices? Going back to the idea of the choices. You see, the world demands we make choices that maximize our ROI. This is the way the world operates. It says you get the most for you at the least cost possible. Return on investment, ROI. Actually, it's actually a legal obligation for corporations to make choices based on what will be the, the what will maximize the return to the investors. Most of us in here work for corporations right now which would be sued if they made a decision based on anything else. And that's what the world tells us. It says you have an obligation, a responsibility to do what is best for you. Period. That's the way the world operates. 
But we're not just subject to the world. We also have our flesh. We also have our humanness there. We all know where those things. We make choices out of our greed, out of our pride, out of our ego, and so often out of our fear. What will cause me the least pain? How do I get away from this? How do I not face up to the to the responsibility of what of the choices I made. Like we're, we're constantly in turmoil of these inner demons working on us in a way. Rooted in fear, greed, lust, pride, envy. It's not just that. We don't even have the world and the flesh. We got one more. We got the, we got the devil. We got the enemy. We got Satan. And Satan's whole goal is to convince you to make choices that will bring your own destruction and maximize the collateral damage in your life. It's the way the enemy works. He says, I don't only want to take you down, I want to take down everybody around you that you love. I want to convince you to make choices that will destroy you and destroy everybody else. And he's subtle. The devil is subtle. I've just been amazed at at how it seems like this game that the devil is playing to blind us, to keep us from understanding the consequences of our choices, and then at the last minute to reveal it all, to pull back the curtain and say, guess what? Look at what you've been doing. It's It's like this demonic game of hide and seek cover it up and unveil it that the enemy is doing. Y'all, that's the context in which we're making choices. That, That is literally what is going on inside of us and outside of us in the seen and in the unseen. Those are the things that are pressuring us to make choices. What do we do? How can we possibly make a choice? I mean, that should just paralyze us. To never make another choice. There's so many options and they all look bad. What do we do? Well, our response is rooted in this covenantal faithfulness of God. You see, that's what breaks the cycle. That's what frees us. Is when we understand that God... has promised, has pledged to be with us regardless. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, as I said earlier. Nothing can separate us from Christ Jesus. Not any consequence of any choice. There is nothing that will tear us from that love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God's presence is with us always. We can do nothing to earn it, and we can do nothing to unearn it. We can do nothing to deserve it, and we can do nothing to undeserve it. It is a gift freely given to us regardless of our behavior. Now, are there consequences to our behavior? Of course there are. We've talked about this. Consequences to everything. 
Does this free us from the consequences of our choices? No, it doesn't. We have to live with the consequences of our choices. But we have to know that, that ultimately that has been mitigated, amended, and taken care of by the love of God expressed through Christ Jesus. We make our choices not in confidence in our own discernment, not in confidence that if we do our homework, we're going to get the right answer, not in consequence that if we just check all the boxes that it's all going to turn out all right. No, we don't make, you can't make a choice that way. There's too much evidence to the contrary that if you just get the formula right, you're going to be guaranteed to make the right choice. Sorry, doesn't work that way. But there's something better. There's something better than that, which is the confidence that we are loved by God, that we are accepted by God, that we are promised to by God, and that we are held in the covenantal faithfulness of Jesus. So we can make our choices with confidence that God is ultimately working all this for our good, for his glory. That's how we make choices, is knowing that God holds us, that we are held in the love of God, in the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God with the covenantal love of God. That is what is demonstrated towards Naomi by her daughter-in-law Ruth. And ultimately that is what is demonstrated towards us, each of us, in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want a hero of the faith to model your life after, you don't have to look much further than Ruth. She is a hero to emulate here and now. Ruth's choice, based in love and loyalty, ends up resulting in a lineage that will lead to King David. Now, we get to see the result of her choice. Ruth didn't, okay? So this is important for us to understand, is that Ruth makes this choice not knowing where it's going to lead. Now, we know that her, her lineage, her prodigy between her and Boaz goes on to produce King David, which goes on to produce Jesus. Awesome. She didn't know that. I mean, we, we celebrate her as a hero of the faith because we see how it went on. She didn't know that. She made the choice in the moment. Now, and again, I mentioned it earlier, she is a Moabitess. She is an immigrant. She is an outsider in the direct lineage, lineage of David and Jesus with that. But what about the choice Orpah made? Because Orpah didn't do a bad thing. Like Orpah, she, it's, not like, it's not like Ruth is the good child and Orpah is the bad child. I mean, Orpah did what Orpah had to do to go back. But Scripture tells us also that Orpah was the mother of someone famous. This character named Goliath of Gath. Now, the timeline doesn't quite work out exactly, so I don't think Orpah was the direct mother like Goliath was her son. I believe Goliath was a descendant of her, as it lines up with David. But she made a choice too, and it had consequences as well. 
Yet God is faithful and worked those things out in the way that God does as well. As Paul Harvey would say, that's the rest of the story with that. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And I'm going to ask us to contemplate this question. How are we making choices here? How are you making choices? And, and again, look, nobody's going to make it 100% right, okay? There is no absolutely pure choice. Nobody can make a choice 100% pure way. But, but which way are you going? Which way are you leaning? Are you leaning on the world's way? Like, hey, I've got to get the, the most return on my investment. I have to take the best bargain. I have to, I have to do what's best for me. Are you, are you giving in to the, to the conflict, the internal conflict of fear, of greed, of pride, lust, anger? Is that what's driving you? Maybe you don't even see it, but maybe you're making decisions that are guided demonically. Choices telling you to do things that ultimately are destructive to yourself, to others. How are we making our choices? That's not a question I don't think we can answer right now. Maybe you can. But I think it's something to be meditated on. But I will tell you, you have a choice right now. You have a choice right now. Who are you going to trust? Where are you going to base your life? Where are you going to orient your life? Is it going to be in the covenantal faithfulness of God towards you? This promise to never leave or forsake you, to be with you, to go with you where you live, to be with you when you die. Or are you going to go back home? You're going to wander back to your village and just make the best of it as you can. That's a choice we all have. It's a choice we make once and it's a choice we make often. But we all have that choice. If you want to make that choice, say yes to the covenantal faithfulness of God, it starts at this table. It starts by coming up and receiving something that you cannot do for yourself. Something that you could never do for yourself. Receiving the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. The covenantal expression of God's presence with us. Our communion table is, to open, to all, is open to all who are following Jesus. We don't dismiss by rows. You may never have followed Jesus, but you want to now. Come to this table. Take this as emblematic and as powerful a demonstration, a tangible, visceral demonstration of God's faithful covenant to us. As you come up, we ask that you hold the cracker, hold the cup, sit close. Even if you're on the back row, sit close. Then we'll all take the elements together. Also during this time, we take an offering as demonstration that none of us here is without need. None of us here is without something to offer. We share among one another. This is also a time to reflect and to make an intentional choice of what you're going to do with this word. Don't just leave here and let it scatter. Purpose to respond in obedience to what the Holy Spirit, not me, but what the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning. Write it down. Tell somebody. Do something that makes it real. Because when you walk out of these doors, you know what it's like. 
you'll be thrown back into all the choices you're going to have to make. So make this choice now while you can in this space. We'll sing another song, then we'll have a benediction and we'll dismiss. So thank you for being here this morning.